Heavenly Father, we want to praise you for your amazing grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ that he experienced the wrath against sin that was ours. We praise and thank you for your mercy and grace and great, great love. And we pray for our family and our friends and our loved ones who don't yet know you. We pray you would have mercy on them and draw them to faith and repentance in your son, Jesus, that they might have life and joy. And we pray it in his great and glorious name. Amen. Please sit down. Well, the good news is the second talk tonight is a lot shorter. And I'm going to be honest, I've put a ridiculous amount of material in this section. And I can tell you this now because we are sort of right now in the back end of the talk and we're well part, you know, we've, we've done most of it. Uh, that I've learnt a lesson from preparing this ANCON and preparing this talk in particular, that if you prepare an outline for a talk and the outline has in excess of 5,000 words on it as an outline, that doesn't work. So it's good, you know, you keep learning stuff in life. So I'll just try that away. Okay, so... There is no way I'm even going to try to show you what is in all of this material. But I'm, so the good thing is you take away and mull over it and think about it and yeah, it'll keep you going to Christmas, so that's great. Now, I'm going to chart a little bit of a different course through this material, okay? So on Tuesday night, when we looked at Jesus in the end, we saw a diagram. I can't remember what page it's on. But what it had was, the Lord came... And that brought about fulfilment. And then the Lord will come, and that brings about complete fulfilment. You remember that? Somewhere in there. The idea was that whilst all of God's promises were fulfilled in Jesus in his first coming, in his death and resurrection, there will still be a complete fulfilment when he comes back. So, what we want to do now is we're going to think about the rescue that Jesus fulfills for God's people. And the point I just want you to realise is this. This is like a meta point. Each aspect of the rescue that Jesus will complete when he returns, each aspect of that rescue, he's already begun in his first coming. I'll say that again. Each aspect of the rescue that Jesus will complete has actually already begun as a result of Jesus' first coming. And in fact, that rescue that's already begun, that happened in response to the promise God made even further back. So you have this pattern, promise of rescue made in the past, rescue begun through Jesus' first coming, rescue completed when He comes back. You got that? Right. Why does that matter? Well, I think that is super-duper encouraging. See, what we're waiting for as God's people is not a brand new thing. We're not waiting for something of which we have no experience. No, we can have much more confidence in that because the rescue for which we're waiting, Jesus has actually already begun in our experience. So if I said to you, I'll give you an example. If I said to you, guess what? In one month's time, you and me, and maybe a friend, you can bring a friend, special friend maybe, anyway... <laughs> You and me, 
we're going to go on the trip of a lifetime. We are going to go to New York. I was going to say Canberra, and then I realized that didn't work. We're going to go to New York. Yes, I, in one month, I'm going to book the plane tickets. I'm going to organize accommodation. We are going to New York. Now, just if I did say that to you, would you be excited? Yeah, yeah it'd be pretty exciting, wouldn't it? Like, that would be... I'd be excited anyway. anyway. Maybe you'd prefer to go with someone else. That's all right, I guess. <laughs> but at the moment... I've made a promise to you, I haven't yet done anything about it. You would, you would be a bit excited. But then, in a month's time, when we've packed our bags, and I've given you your ticket, and we're walking into the departure lounge, you reckon you'd be excited at that moment? Oh, yeah. Why? Because this is more than just a promise. This is a promise that has started to be fulfilled in my experience. I haven't got to New York. I'm not that excited about going to the departure lounge. I haven't got to New York, but the promise has begun to be realized in my experience. Well, that's what Jesus' rescue of you through faith is like. The rescue for which you're waiting has actually already begun in your experience. We are on the way, friends, by God's grace. That is very exciting. Now, I'm thinking then about how the New Testament describes this rescue, which Jesus brings about. I've divided it into four categories, sort of numbered one to four in your book, which I've spread over pages 37 to 39. To summarise it like this, Jesus' rescue has four aspects to it. He rescues us from the wrath of God. He rescues us from death. He rescues us from sin and he rescues the entire world from corruption. Those are all aspects of the rescue. And so, the reason I've made this point so far is this. Next to each point, I've got a diagram, and all the diagrams have the same shape. In each diagram, you'll see an arrow that points to a promise, and then you'll see a caption somewhere that says, Already begun. And then you'll see a box at the left, oh sorry, on the right-hand side, that has passages that talk about the complete fulfillment that Jesus will bring when he returns, right? So you now can go away, you can trace out with each aspect of that rescue, the promise, how it's already begun, and how the rescue will be completed, all right? Now, I'm not going to go through the details, you've got it to work out, I'm just going to drop in and out on just a few particular bits I I think would be helpful to talk about. So, the first one there rescued from the wrath of God, we, we need to stop and think about that because we have talked a lot tonight about God's judgment. And we just need to keep remembering, it is Jesus who rescues us from that coming day of God's wrath. If you look at the bottom verse in the box on the right-hand side of that diagram, you can see how Paul put it in writing to the Thessalonian Christians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, He says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's probably worth underlining. It's only Jesus who rescues us from this coming wrath of God against sin, only by being connected to Jesus 
in the Spirit, by faith, do we share in His justification, His sanctification, so that we are saved on that coming day from the wrath of hell. Over the page then, point two. Jesus also rescues us from death, which is the last enemy according to the New Testament. So again, in the box on the right-hand side of the diagram, you can see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. For Jesus must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. When will that happen? Well, when the corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. See, part of this great rescue when Jesus returns is to raise you from the dead with a new physical body that is just like Jesus' resurrection body, real flesh and blood, but immortal, incorruptible, no longer susceptible to death or disease. That's your future in Jesus. And that resurrection has, in a way, already begun in you. You go, really? When did that happen? Well, it it began in you the moment you became a Christian. So in that diagram, next to the already already begun heading, Ephesians 2, Paul says that we have already been raised with Christ. When you became a Christian, you were spiritually raised from the dead. You have a new life, you are a new creation with Christ. All that you are now waiting for is for that spiritual resurrection that's already happened to be matched by the physical resurrection that God, when God gives you that new body. Now, that just does worth, uh, raise a common question that's worth answering. It's halfway down page 38. If Jesus does not return in your lifetime, what's going to happen to you between death and resurrection? You can see the little picture there. If we die as Christians, which the Bible sometimes euphemistically calls falling asleep, we know we won't receive our resurrection bodies until Jesus returns. So what happens in the meantime? Are we just just in the ground? Sort of nowhere? That's a view sort of known as soul sleep. Well, I think the New Testament says that when a Christian dies you can have confidence that they are with the Lord Jesus. Not yet resurrected in a physical body, but somehow, in a a way that's not quite clear to us, they are with the Lord. There's two passages there on your page that I think lead us towards that conclusion. Luke 23, Jesus says to the criminal who is on the point of death, "'Today you will be with me in paradise.'" And in Philippians 1, Paul talks about his own death as departing, to be with Christ. So I think we can be confident that if we die as Christians before Jesus returns, we will be with the Lord Jesus in heaven until He returns. And you can see how John Calvin put it there on your page, yet it is foolish and rash to inquire concerning unknown matters more deeply than God permits us to know. Scripture goes no further than to say that Christ is present with them and receives them into paradise that they may receive consolation while the souls of the reprobate suffer such torments as they deserve. 
Okay, so when you put all those pieces together, I think you get a picture of our future that's a bit surprising. It points first to then a future after death with Jesus in heaven, but then to the reality of life after heaven. Now, just stay with me. Look at the, look at the quote I've got there on the page, how Tom Wright puts it here. He says, the, the use of the word heaven to denote the ultimate goal of the redeemed, though of course hu- hugely popularised by medieval and subsequent piety, is severely misleading and does not begin to do justice to the Christian hope. The ultimate destination is not going to heaven when you die, but being bodily raised into the transformed, glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. Thus, if we want to speak of going to heaven when we die, we should be clear that this represents the first and far less important stage of a two-stage process. Resurrection isn't life after death, it's life after the life after death. (laughs) I, I think on this question about what happens to us after death, I think on this question, Tom Wright, I think has read the Bible helpfully, the promise of Jesus is that when we die, we will be with Him where He is, namely in heaven, that's where He is now, right? But the ultimate future for which we're all waiting is when the Son of Man comes from heaven to the earth to complete His rescue of us, to give us our new resurrection bodies and transform us into His likeness. The ultimate rescue God has planned is not a bodiless existence in heaven, even with Jesus. The ultimate rescue God has planned is resurrected physical life in the new creation. Or if we can put it this way, the glorious life after heaven, the new creation. Yeah, you're probably going to want to ask me questions about that at question time, I can know. So we're rescued from God's wrath, we're rescued from death, very briefly, points 3 and 4 on page 39, we're also rescued from sin and from corruption. The great promise of God is that in the new creation we will be entirely free of sin and And whilst that is a rescue whose complete fulfilment lies in the future, again, its realisation has already started in our experience as those who are in Christ. Because when we become a Christian, God rescues us out of sin's power. Romans 6 says that sin is then no longer our master because we're now in the Spirit. That does not mean I live free from sin now. The rescue is only complete when Jesus returns. But it does mean that even now I'm not controlled by sin. In the power of the Spirit that God puts within us as His people, we are able to resist temptation instead of being ruled by it. You won't do that perfectly until the new creation But the rescue from the power of sin has already begun in you, in the power of the Spirit. And finally, we're also going to be rescued from corruption, except this point is bigger than just you or me. This is actually about the rescue of the entire created universe from the decay and death that it is currently experiencing. 
And in Romans 8, chapter 21, Paul talks about the whole creation being set free from its present bondage to corruption and instead sharing in the glorious freedom and redemption that we will experience. So just as, just as your physical body is going to be renewed, the entire created order will be renewed. All the effects of sin in the world will be done away with. There will be a physical, a perfected, a glorious universe free from all decay, disease. That's the renewal of all things, waiting in the future. But you know what? That's already begun. It's already started to happen in one particular three-dimensional space in our universe. That renewal of all things has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus. One part of our physical universe has already experienced that glorious renewal. God's already done it in resurrecting the physical body of Jesus. The rescue of the entire created universe has already begun. And there's a great quote from John Polkinghorne there on your page, which I'll lead you, leave you to read later. Now that raises a question over the page on page 40. So is it that our present universe is going to be destroyed then? And remade, or is it just going to be sort of transformed and renewed? Which way does it go? I'm going to leave you to read the passage there from 2 Peter chapter 3. And then what I think are some helpful comments on that passage from Paul Wolf, you can read that as well. So, I told you we're going to move fast. So, that's our sort of grand tour through the great rescue that Jesus will bring with him when he comes, from, from wrath, from death, from sin, and from corruption. Now, like we did when we looked at hell, I want to press down a little bit more on the issue of heaven and the new creation. But in the interest of time, I'm going to cut it short. I'm going to leave you to read the stuff on page 40 about reading this language about heaven from C.S. Lewis, which is beautiful. If you like, if you like beautiful writing lovely language. You'll love what C.S. Lewis writes. And if you're on the other side of City Road, maybe just get, get to know somebody who likes sandstone and, and have them explain it to you in the prayer tower. So I'm going to leave you to read that stuff on page 40 about reading this, this language of heaven. I'm also even going to skip over the beautiful description of the new creation that's given there in Revelation 21-22, which I've reproduced on page 41. But I have a suggestion for you. We've actually looked at some of that passage already earlier this week, which is why I'm going to skip over it. But, but here's just a suggestion in your review group tomorrow. You might like just to read out that passage aloud and talk about it together. This wonderful picture of the new creation that God gives us at the end of the Bible and discern the truth wrapped in the metaphor and be greatly encouraged. But I want to jump straight over then to page 42 and talk about the clear point of all these descriptions of our future rescue. The point is simply this, and I've written it there on your page. 
the reason God gives us this insight into the glorious future, this rescue he's planning, is because he wants you to grab hold of it. He wants you to grab hold of this breathtaking future fulfillment of God's creation purposes met in Jesus Christ and when he comes. See, that's why he's given us this amazing description. To tell you how good it will be. So that you will take hold of what he's offering. He's saying, here it is. This is what it'll be like. Do you want in on this? So grab hold of the life that is really life. That's how Paul describes it in 1 Timothy 6. It's the life in the coming age, the life in the new creation when Jesus returns. Paul says, that's the life that's really life. What we experience now, even in its best moments, is just but a taste of the real life when our rescue is complete. Now, I don't know if you've read the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. Who's read that? Wow, okay, all right. Who just watched the movie? Thumbs up. Awesome. It's just as good. No, no, no. No. I'm going to read out two bits. We're going to look at two bits here from the last book of that series, The the Last Battle. I I don't know if you realised, probably if you went to the movies you didn't, but... The entire Narnia series is this extended allegory of the Christian worldview. It is. And in the final book of the series, Lewis describes the moment, the moment when the the characters enter the new Narnia. And it's there on your page. He writes, It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. (laughs) No, you got... Like, who who was that? Who laughed? Now, in in all seriousness, Cam... Look, I would expect more... I mean, you're a science student, I know, but you're not bringing any glory to your faculty. Right? Come on. I'm a science graduate. I'm a science graduate from the University of Sydney. I feel shame. <laughs> That's it. I'm going back to just, you know, diagrams. None more of this literature stuff. Come on, I'm trying to... This is deliberately evocative, right? That's what it's been... It's like, it's like explaining the jokes. It's, it's just... Okay. Just go with me, right? Just, just listen to it. It was the unicorn who summed up what... <laughs> you ruined it! I'm going to go on. He, it, <laughs> he stamped his right forehoof on the ground and he neighed and then he cried. Now get this. I love how Lewis has put this. He said, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. 
the reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. The truth that he's trying to capture there is that what, whatever it is that you are longing for, what you long for at the deepest level, even if you don't realise it, it will ultimately only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ and God, his Heavenly Father, and the power of his Spirit and the, the consummation of all of his promises in the new creation. That is where our deepest longings will be satisfied. So grab hold of it. That's what he's holding out for us. Now we're going to talk about point two tomorrow morning. But another reason to be excited about this future is because it's not just an end, but it's actually a beginning. See, when Jesus returns and the end finally comes, it's actually the beginning, isn't it, of the rest of eternity. The enjoyment of God and the complete fulfilment of His promises forever and ever. And I'm going to go back to Lewis, despite the slings and arrows. (laughs) Lewis describes, that was another allusion to literature for you, Cam. (laughs) Again, Lewis describes that moment when the new creation begins, and he describes it in this way. This is right at the very end of the book. The term is over, the school term, that's the analogy. The school term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream is ended, this is the morning. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. We can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had been only the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever. Our life here is just the cover and title page with the whole of the story yet to unfold in the new heavens and the new earth. And so how do we go with this? How do we respond to this? To quote Lewis the third time, don't settle for mud pies. In an essay he wrote called The Weight of Glory, he said this, he said, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joys are offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So friends, fix your sights on heaven and the new creation, on the rescue that God's promised and don't settle for mud pies. So we come to the end of this ridiculously massive talk. And we don't need to spend a lot of time 
on some of the answers to how we respond to these realities because we've actually already talked about them on the way through. We need to repent because Jesus is coming to judge and we will all have to give an account to him. And we need to be clear-headed because the end of all things is near and it's time to live rightly, time to throw off the old sinful ways. But the final response I want to spend a moment on is proclaim. So you notice what Paul says to Timothy there, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom, proclaim the message. Persist in it, whether convenient or not. Rebuke, correct, encourage with great patience and teaching. See, Jesus is coming. So proclaim the message, the message about Jesus. He's coming to judge and rescue, that the kingdom of God is coming in all of its fullness. There's life in no one else except in this Jesus. And you see Norman Anderson's reflection there on a page. Maybe you'll identify with what he, how he reflects here. He says, We're involved in a world in which millions are living and dying without any knowledge of the salvation that there is in Christ alone. In this life, most people think they can get by without him. But one day, all will come to the awful realisation that they were wrong. The issue is as stark as it could be. Eternal life or eternal death. And it is our duty to make this known and to point people to him. And then he has this moment of personal reflection. He says, I very much wish... I had myself done this more effectively and been more faithful in prayer. Amen to that. So as Jesus' people, we need to be committed to proclaiming him. Not just to those who don't yet know him. Paul's actually telling Timothy, don't just do evangelism. He's saying, you've got to encourage the the Christians as well. You preach the word to everybody. Preach it inside and outside the community of believers because it's not just you coming to faith, it's about you persevering in faith until he returns. So as Jesus' people, we're committed to seeing him proclaimed and that's what the EU's on about, which is why it's so fantastic to be part of it. It's right there in what we call our objects, our reasons for being, to present students with the Christian gospel, to lead them to personal faith in the Lord Jesus, to encourage them to continually submit every aspect of their life to his lordship. And that's what our churches need to be doing too, isn't it? Proclaiming this message of Christ inside and outside the community because the day is near. He's coming soon. And so I do want to finish tonight just with a particular challenge about how you might be involved in that. I just want to ask a particular question within the framework we've set up. I want to know whether you're willing to give yourself to doing that sort of ministry in the long term at a university, proclaiming this message about Jesus to uni students around Australia and overseas because he's coming. Let me quickly tell you while I'm raising this. First, I'm not saying uni is more important than other areas of life. It's not. I mean, you might think you're the elite, elite, whatever. Frankly, you're no more important than any other human being that God has created and Jesus died for. Uni is not a more special place. It's not more important than church. 
or the workplace or the kids' ministry or Bible colleges or any other sort of ministry, right? I'm not saying it because of that. I'm saying it, my second thing is, I'm saying it because just of a very practical observation that in all sorts of ways, universities are the, set the pace for our wider culture. And they do, it does that because that's where the leaders of our culture come from. That's where the leaders of our culture are grown. So if we want to reach Australia with the gospel of Jesus, if we want to see Jesus' gospel take root in other countries, if we want to raise up hundreds more workers for God's harvest field who will go and serve in churches and in hospitals and in workplaces, then universities are a key place to be proclaiming Jesus. Universities are like the greenhouses for our culture where the culture is germinated, grows, and then bursts out. And that's what we want to have to happen with Jesus and the message about his kingdom. Jesus is coming back. The day is nearly here. We need to proclaim this message of Jesus. We need to have zealous, faithful, bold Christians on every campus and in every church in Australia. So uni is just one place, but it is a very strategic place to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. See... For myself, the great passion that God's given me is actually not university ministry, which might come as a surprise, I realise. My, my passion is actually for the local church. That's where the action is in my heart, long term. I was a church pastor. But the reason I gave up being a church pastor is not because, oh, but Sydney Uni, that'd be a step up. No, in fact, we, I wanted to go and be a church pastor outside of Sydney, <laughs> This was entirely the wrong place to go. (laughs) The reason I gave up being a church pastor to come here to serve with the EU is, is because here was a way I worked out not to serve one church, but to serve hundreds of churches by trying to serve you, by trying to bring the Word of God into your life to help you become a more mature, more zealous Christian leader in your church community. So at just a practical level, uni is a strategic place where we can try and win the world for Christ. My third just point is, I think we as the Sydney Uni EU should grab hold of this opportunity and send out heaps of uni student workers before Jesus returns. Now, I'm not sure why, but this is something that has not happened up to this point, particularly. Let me tell you how deeply ironic I find this. Earlier this year, I was talking to Lindsay Brown, who wrote a book called Shining Like Stars, which is actually on the bookshop. He, Lindsay served as the um, head of IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. That's like the, the EU, made up of EU groups from all around the whole world. I had this opportunity, a great privilege, just of chatting for a little while to Lindsay. And he, he said, oh, so how many students are involved with the EU at Sydney University? And I said, oh, by God's grace, there's 850 people in our small groups last year. And he said, right, 850. He said, well, that probably puts you as one of the five biggest IFES groups in the world. See, there's a group in Kenya, there's another one in Rwanda. By God's grace, this is one of the fifth, in the top five sized groups, IFES groups in the world. 
And here's the kicker though, in the last 20 years, in the entirety of your lifetime, as we've seen hundreds and hundreds of students come through the EU and quite a number go into Christian leadership of some sort, how many EUers have gone into long-term student work outside of some sort of church setting? And the, the answer you heard, six. Six people in the last 20 years, in your entirety of your life, and the EU, by God's grace, has been blessed. One of the biggest groups in the world, and we're not producing student workers, and we're the ones who know the blessing. It's produced six in 20 years. I'm one of them. And so's Liz Mansour, and so's Ben Lim. You know them. So is Mike Kwan, that's four. There's only two others. One's working on another campus in Sydney, one's working on a campus in Melbourne. None of them, none of us, have gone to do it overseas in 20 years. Now, that's not your problem at one level, You've just been growing up. But now the challenge is with you. What happens over the next 20 years? Two years ago, we had some students from Charles Darwin Uni, which is the uni in, in Darwin, come and join us at Ancon. Do you know how many were going to their equivalent of Ancon that year? 13. That you go to Charles Darwin Uni in Darwin and look at their mid-year camp, 13. They do it in tents. That's in Australia. And you heard Danny Mullins the other night about the uni he served in France. Bigger unis than the University of Sydney. Ten students meeting together. There is a huge need... And we are blinded by God's blessing. He's, he's not blinding us. We are just comfortably blind to our riches. So here's a thought I had as I was reflecting on these things. Last 20 years, six people. How long would it take, do you reckon, for us to send out 100 long-term, trained-up, university student workers for the world? A hundred. Could we get to a hundred? Could we do a hundred under God by His grace? It might take us 20 years. But if in the last 20 we got six, and by God's grace in the next 20 we got a hundred, praise God, that would be great. Because it actually takes a long time to land in a university as a trained-up student worker. It might take you 10 years to get there from tonight if you were to say, yeah, I'm up for that. You know, you've got to finish your degree, which might take you three years or more. You might work for two years. You might then come and learn how to do full-time ministry by coming back and being a Howie here with us. That's another two years. Get some Bible training, maybe another... It's going to add up to about 10 years before you get there. That sounds like a long time, but what a great thing to do with your life. Because Jesus is coming back. What are you going to do? So I just want to say, if that's something you'd consider, even as I talk about it, if you think, 
I could be interested in that. In fact, I actually find that a bit exciting thought, to go and work on a university campus to proclaim Jesus until he returns. If you're interested in that, um, a number is going to flash up on the screen now. <laughs> and in all seriousness, this is, um, this is uh, one of the Howie's phones. So use it wisely. <laughs> I mean that, you know, use it wisely. If you're interested in thinking about, yeah, you know what? I'd like to, I'd like to seriously think about being one of those 100 I know it might take a while, I know I've got to work it out, I know that I've got to, you know, get the confirmation from other people, I know I've got training, I know I need to think about it, talk about it, pray about it a lot, but I'm ha- I want to think about being one of those 100. If, that's, if you're interested in that, can you jot down that number <laughs> and send us a text by tomorrow lunch, okay? Just text your name so that we know who you are and then we'll get in contact with you and I thought in second semester... This is my commitment. We will um, gather together the people who are interested and start talking about what might this look like, what would it involve, and we'll start talking about it together. Let's see if under God we could have 100 people proclaiming Christ on university campuses within the next 20 years. Now, this is just one way, right, that we can get on and proclaim Christ because ultimately the reality of His coming of the judgment and the rescue that he's going to bring, that's going to keep driving us to repent and to live in a clear-headed way and to, and to commit ourselves to proclaiming him in every opportunity that he graciously provides. So let's pray and ask him to help us do that. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for your great rescue of us in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. We pray that you would help us to repent of our sins and cling on to the Lord Jesus Christ and grab that rescue you offer. You would help us to be clear-headed and live holy lives following the Lord Jesus and holding on to his teaching. And that, Father, you would help us to proclaim him boldly, in season and out of season, rebuke and encourage with great patience as we wait for his return. We pray these things for his glory and kingdom. Amen.